Amen. Good morning, everybody. And welcome to this Resurrection Sunday. Would love for you to turn in your Bibles, please, if you have one, to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. And that's where we'll be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, um, please grab one in the seat pocket in front of you. There's one also in the back of the room. We'd love for you to take one of those and follow along as we look at the scriptures. Isaiah 53 um, is where we will be um, this morning. And uh, we're really glad that you're here and glad that we get to celebrate this together. Um, We're going to focus this morning, obviously, on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, We, um, you know, every Sunday here at the Field Church, if you've been with us for any length of time, we are continually focused on the crucifixion. We're continually focused on the resurrection. Um, As we preach verse by verse sequentially through the Bible, um, that is the essence of the entire storyline of Scripture, that God has made a plan, a, a redemptive plan to save sinners through the death of his son from Genesis to Revelation. That's the story. That's the plan. That's what God is doing. Every book and every, um, every part, every portion along the way in the scriptures is somewhere along the way of God's redemptive plan. He has revealed it progressively and in portions throughout time and in different ways throughout time. But ultimately, that is the That is the plan that's unfolding from the beginning unto the end. Everything in the Bible needs to be seen in light of that plan and at some point in that plan. And so this is the storyline of the whole Bible. And so as we preach verse by verse, we understand that um, this is always before us. The resurrection, the crucifixion and the resurrection are always before us. They always inform everything that we talk about, anything that you're applying to your life biblically, anything that you are living for, any ways in which God wants you to change. It's all done because Christ has died, because he's resurrected, because he calls a people to himself and because um, we are being transformed by his Holy Spirit to become more like him and be with him one day as as we um, leave this earth and go with him to, to be with him in heaven. So all of this points us to the fact that we are continually looking at the resurrection and, of course, his crucifixion. But it's nice once a year to take this time to maybe focus in on all the details of each aspect, take the opportunity to instruct on this particular issue. And so each time that we do this, each time we do this every year, the goal is not creativity. Like what can we say that they have never heard about in terms of the resurrection and the crucifixion? The goal is not um, to, to do something out of the ordinary, but to simply do what we always do, which is look to the word of God and understand its instruction. And today we'll just simply do that about the particulars of the resurrection. It's to give you understanding. That's the point of today. Knowledge, clarity that would lead you to know Christ. Faith comes through this knowledge of the scripture and then to worship Christ in light of who he is and what he's done, that you would have an understanding. That's what leads to transformation. You know the truth and you respond accordingly to the truth. So we're going to learn some truth about the resurrection today. Isaiah chapter 53 might be a surprise to you to, for us to look at on a day like this because Isaiah 53 is typically known for its picture of the what? The crucifixion, the rejection of Christ, the death of Christ. Not typically known for the resurrection, but it might be a surprise to you that it although gives a detailed, comprehensive picture of Christ's death, what you might not know is that the fourth and final section of this chapter, verses 10 through 12, give us an amazing picture 
of the resurrection and its implications. And so let's read Isaiah 53, 1 through 12, and then we'll move into these verses. Isaiah 53, 1 through 12. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken by God, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear the iniquities, their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. What a picture. On Good Friday, we covered the first three sections of this chapter. Verses 1 through 9 are those three initial sections. And I entitled those section, that section, the suffering servant. Verses 1 through 9 tell us the picture of the suffering servant. But in verses 10 through 12, what we see, which is to the title of today, we see the picture of the risen Lord. In this chapter, we see him go from the suffering servant to the risen Lord in 12 verses. It's amazing. He is the risen Lord. He's always been the risen Lord. But we see a full picture of this in this particular chapter. And as we look at this text, I want to do a bit of a recap just for a moment and then move on to our verses for today and discover the amazing truths about the resurrection. In Isaiah 53, 1 through 9, in these first three sections, we really saw three parts of the picture of Christ's life and death. Three particular parts to this. And the first thing that we saw in verses 1 through 3 is that Christ was rejected by man. He was rejected by man. That's what verses 1 through 3 are about. His rejection. It's amazing. If you, take this, if you would take the time to read this chapter and look through these verses, you would be astounded at how comprehensive and how detailed these particular verses are and how theological and doctrinal. There is so much here. You have to understand that what is pointed out in these three verses is so comprehensive. I mean, it speaks of the Trinity. These verses speak of Christ's oneness with the Father. 
He is the power, the arm of the Lord. But yet it reveals the distinctness of Christ. And so there we see the Trinity. He is one in essence, but distinct in his person and role. I mean, that's all there in that first verse. What's also there is the care that the father has for the son. And yet what we see in this also in these first three verses is that he was rejected by man. He was rejected in his birth. He was rejected in his life and ministry. And he was rejected at the end of his life. And all of that points to the rejection of the Messiah, not meeting messianic expectations and him being killed. I mean, it's all there. So detailed. Oneness with the father, distinctness from the father, humiliation through his incarnation, rejection, messianic expectations. I mean, all there in the first three verses. It's amazing. Then the second thing that we saw was that he was not only rejected by men, but he was received by God. He was received by God. In verses four through six, what we see is that he is a substitute. This is the doctrine of penal substitution, substitutionary atonement, expiation, propitiation. All of it's there in those next three verses, verses four through six. He took the full brunt of our penalty for our sin. It's amazing what is there. It speaks in detail of what Christ endured. It also speaks in detail of what he died for. It speaks of our nature of sinfulness. It speaks of our law breaking in our sinfulness. It speaks of our choice in our sinfulness. And it speaks of the effects of sin. And all of this was paid for by Christ. The effects, the nature, the breaking of God's law, and the choice. We are guilty through and through. That's what these these verses speak about. Uh, It's amazing. The grief and the sorrow, the effects of sin, the iniquities, the Trans, the, the, the iniquities, the nature that we have of sinfulness, the transgressions, the law breaking. And then like sheep, we have chosen to go our own way. All of this points to this incredible picture of our depravity, of our depravity. And yet Jesus has carried all these sins. He was pierced for these sins. He was crushed for these sins, his wounds were brought about for these sins. And it made peace with God. Listen now, these verses, those next three verses, verses four through six, are substitution. God was satisfied for Christ to take our place. Penal substitution, that's legal, right? Propitiation, a wrath-satisfying sacrifice. He went in our place. Expiation, meaning he took our sins away. All of it's there. It's incredible, this substitution. We needed somebody to take our place for God's wrath to be satisfied, for someone to bear the penalty for sin, to maintain God's justice, and yet justify sinners. And Christ did it all. It's incredible. It's incredible. And then we move into that final section, verses seven through nine, the third section, the final from the other night. In verses seven through nine, what we see is that Christ remained obedient. And so what we see here is the willing sacrifice. Unlike the sacrifice of animals in the Old Testament, they didn't know what they were doing. But our sin is willful. We need a willing sacrifice, one who who takes our place by his choice, who has eternal capacity to bear the weight of sin, infinite capacity to bear all sin for all time for anyone who would repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And he does this, and he does so willingly, obediently. You see that he, this, this, these verses are incredible in verses 7 through 9 because it speaks of his willingness, 
his trust in the Father. It speaks of his trial. I mean, this is detailed. Verses 7 through 9, there is so much detail here. It speaks of his trial, his unfair trial. It speaks of his, uh, of his position before the people, that all the Jews were unsympathetic to what he was doing. The leaders put him on an unfair trial, and the people were unsympathetic to his state. I mean, it's all here. By oppression and judgment, that's a legal term. It's justice was being done, yet it was oppressive. It wasn't right. It wasn't fair. His generation, no one considered that he was making a payment for their sins. They were unsympathetic to his situation. They made his grave with the wicked. It goes on then to his death and his burial. His death and his burial, right? And then it ends, look at verse 9, on his sinlessness. Look at that. And so detailed, too. It says, although he had done no violence, that's action. That's action. There was no deceit found in his mouth. That's words, but we know from the scriptures that out of the overflow of the what? Heart, the mouth speaks. So that's heart and mouth. So actions, heart, mouth, sinless, perfectly sinless in all aspects. I mean, this is incredible. This is Jesus Christ who paid the penalty for sin. There is so much doctrine here. You could spend forever in this chapter and not exhaust it. He was the acceptable payment. He was voluntarily taking our what? Place. Now, many have said that <clears throat> this chapter is more comprehensive than any other place in the entire Bible about Christ and his work, even the New Testament. Isn't that incredible? Some people call it the fifth what? Gospel, or the, the first one, because it was earlier, right? Now, listen, you might say, okay, all this happened Friday. What does this have to do with Sunday? Why are we still talking about the crucifixion? Well, let me just tell you that if you're going to understand that somebody rose from the dead, you're going to have to first understand that they did what? Died, right? So uh, we, we don't isolate this thing. That's a that's out of proportion with biblical Christianity. You can't isolate stuff like that and just try to talk about one aspect without the other. It doesn't work like that. So we must understand that if we're going to have a resurrection, we first got to have a what? A death. And that is indeed what happened. And we've established that this far. Good Friday, we established that through these first nine verses. Well, now that it's established, we understand that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was truly dead. He was incarnate. He was rejected. He was murdered. He paid the penalty for sin, though he was totally innocent. But there's another piece to this story, isn't there? There's another piece. There's a missing piece, another docu uh, doctrine here. And that is that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, rose from the dead. So let's look at it. Let's look at it. We got our fourth point here, that Christ realized God's plan. He realized God's plan, verses 10 through 12, meaning he accomplished it. He fulfilled it. He finished it. He caused it to come to pass. He fulfilled God's plan, verses 10 through 12. Let's read them again. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous. And he shall bear the iniquities, their iniquities, Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. 
Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This here is a picture of the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, the exaltation of Christ, and the eternal reign and rule of of Christ. All of this precipitated by the resurrection. You got to notice this. Now, I want us to notice that these verses are also not on an island. They look back and they look ahead. They are constantly referring to the death and they're constantly looking forward to glory. Again, that's what you would expect. The resurrection does not stand alone. You can't talk about the resurrection without a talking about how amazing it is in light of the fact that Jesus was really dead. And you can't talk about the resurrection without referring to the future eternal reign and glory of Christ and its implications. You can't refer to any of that um, by itself. You can't refer to the, the death of Christ by itself, the resurrection of Christ by itself. You got to be looking back and looking forward the whole time. And so we see here, though, front and center, the resurrection. God's redemptive plan accomplished for sinners. God achieved his plan. And it gives us three truths about this resurrection here and how God did that. And what we see here are these three. And this is what we'll see today in these verses. Number one, that the resurrection fulfills God's will. How did this realize God's plan? Well, it, the, the resurrection accomplished, fulfilled the will of God. And I'm going to tell you how. And that's verse 10. Secondly, we're going to see that the resurrection justifies man's soul. Here's how it accomplished God's plan. Is that it fulfilled his will and justified man. And number three is that the resurrection secures our eternal reward. It secures eternal reward for sinners. And so God's plan here is fulfilled through the resurrection. And that's the fact that it accomplishes his will, justifies man's soul, and secures our eternal reward. There's a lot of other things that the resurrection does. Um, We're just not talking about all of them today. Right? But you could spend a whole lot of time talking about the implications of the resurrection. The same Holy Spirit that rose Christ from the dead will raise true believers. That same Holy Spirit raises you from the dead spiritually as well, just uh, transforms your life. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. The resurrection proved that Christ was really God. The resurrection um, was exactly what God had planned from the beginning in the scriptures. I mean, there's a lot of implications to the resurrection. Today, we're going to talk about these three. It fulfilled God's will. It justified man's soul and it secures an eternal reward for believers. Let's start with the first one. The resurrection fulfills God's will. The resurrection fulfills God's will. Verse 10. Yet it was his, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his what? Hand. Now, what are we seeing here? Well, let me tell you, first of all, to start this, is that the will of the Lord throughout the plan of redemption, throughout the scriptures, throughout the beginning, from the beginning to the end, has really one theme, and that's salvation. Um, that, the whole Bible is about it. The Old Testament points to the coming of Christ. The Gospels tell us of the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Christ. The epistles, or the book of Acts, talks about the proclamation of Christ. All the epistles then moving forward ex- Christ, give us the explanation of Christ and it's his, the implications of his work. And the book of Revelation speaks of the reign and the rule 
of who? Christ. The whole Bible is about salvation. And through salvation, God accomplishes two things. The salvation of sinners and the exaltation of his son. That's what he accomplishes. And that's what the whole story's been about, continues to be about. And every point in the Bible is at some place in that whole storyline of redemption. That's called biblical theology. The whole plan is about the salvation of sinners and the exaltation of Christ. Right? That's it. That's what it is. He wants to make a holy people set apart from him, set apart for him, mature, born again, truly saved, who will be with him forever through what his son has accomplished and will be in worship of his son forever. I mean, that's the whole purpose. That's the whole plan. And so all of this, let me just tell you, is fulfilled in the resurrection. Jesus will be, is exalted, and sinners are what? Saved. All of this happens in the resurrection, and these verses make it clear. Look at verse 10 with me. It starts out by saying what? Yet. I love that. Stop right there. Yet. That's a big word. Because we have seen a whole lot of things, haven't we, since the very beginning of this chapter? And all of this, listen now, was under the sovereign hand of God. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was rejected. He died. He remained obedient to death. He was put in the grave. He was sinless. And you got to know something. That wasn't an accident. And man didn't win. Neither did Satan. That was the will of the Lord. This is the sovereignty of God in salvation. It's clear as day. God does the work to save sinners. He initiates it and he completes it. That's the love of God. So he comes and he brings about this plan. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. That's what it says here. Crush him is also used back in verse five. He was crushed for our what? Iniquities. For our sinfulness, uh, our sin, our nature. Though he wasn't sinful, back in verse nine, at the end of verse nine, he was crushed for our sin, right? Our iniquity. Yet it says in verse 10, was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was put, he has put him to what? Grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. So let me just point out right here that Christ's offering and sacrifice was not for your health, wealth, and prosperity. You got that? It was for what? Verse 10, guilt. The whole reason that Jesus died was because man had no way of being made right with who? God. It's because of the guilt that you have standing before God. It's because of sin. The reason why Jesus died was to take away and pay the penalty for what? Sin. So that's clear. He was put to death for guilt. But what's also clear here is God's sovereignty. This is amazing. Look at this. He has put him to what? Grief. God, he, look at, just look at your verses because we're walking through it right now. He, meaning God, has put him, meaning who? Jesus, to grief. He crushed him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was God's plan. You know, this was God's lamb, the lamb of what? God, the lamb of God. During the Old Testament, the time of sacrifices, the father would pick a lamb to sacrifice for sin. And the father has indeed picked a sacrifice, and that's his son, Jesus. And so 
This is what he's called, the Lamb of God, John 1, 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said what? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So this is God's Lamb who takes away sin. This was God's sovereignty to do this, to forgive sinners. He made all of this happen. Now, second half of verse 10. Why in the world would God do this? Why would this be the will of the Lord? Why would this be the will of the Lord? Well, let me just tell you. Because God's plan was that he wouldn't stay dead. God killed his son knowing that his son would not remain in the what? In the grave. This was his plan because God knew that this was a necessary task for someone to die for sin, his son, the only perfect sacrifice, to rise from the dead was, to raise from the dead was part of the plan. God knew that this would be the plan. We, we see it throughout all the Old Testament. Even what I read this morning in Psalm 16, David spoke of it. David spoke of it way before Christ ever came. And how we see this is, look, look at the verse. When his soul, verse 10, makes an offering for what? Guilt, which is the reason why Jesus died. He shall see his what? Offspring. He will see his offspring. Let me ask you this question. This is pretty clear. After he, makes, after he pays the penalty for sin, he shall see his offspring. What's the only thing that prevents anybody from seeing their offspring? Death and their offspring. Death, right? And so he's going to see his offspring because he's not going to be dead, but what? Alive. He sh when he's done with this, he will be made alive. He's going to see his offspring. Who is the offspring? All the redeemed people of God who have trusted in his son, have been born again, who have repented of their sin and trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sin. He's going to see all of them. He's going to be a living savior who raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, is exalted and sits at the right hand of the father forever with all the redeemed people. He's going to see his offspring and look at the end of verse 10. He shall prolong his what? His days, meaning this, his reign and rule will be forever. His days will be prolonged. He will live forever. That doesn't happen if someone's in the, in the grave. It only happens if someone is living. We have a living Savior. The will of the Lord at the end of verse 10, look at it. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. What was the will of the Lord? To exalt his son and save who? Sinners. And that's going to be happening. It's happened. It will happen. It will continue to happen. It will prosper. It will be successful through Christ because Christ will raise from the dead. After he's crushed, after the sovereign God has put him to death, after he's paid the price for, for sin, he will raise from the dead. He will have a redeemed people with him forever. He will be eternally alive and remaining this will of the Lord to save sinners and exalt his son will happen. This is the plan. He will reign forever. And this was the plan. You understand that what we've seen as we've walked through the book of Luke, can you guys remember this? As we've walked through Luke, as we finished the Jerusalem journey narrative and entered into the passion narrative, which is the last week of Jesus's life and, and then the ascension and the resurrection. But as we finish that journey narrative, remember Jesus was talking and teaching a lot about the topic of what? Salvation, right? And so at the end of that, Jesus speaks about his rejection, his suffering. He says this in Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 34. Um, he says, and taking the 12, he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets will be what? 
accomplished, he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, be mocked, shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they're going to kill him, and on the third day, he's going to rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. What is being pointed out here is that the Jews could not figure out how they would have a reigning Messiah who lived forever, because that's what the Old Testament said would happen, and yet that he was being rejected and that he was heading towards his what? Death. How could that happen? How could you have a forever reigning Messiah and yet here right now he's being put to death? What they didn't understand was that he was going to what? Raise. That he was going to raise from the dead. This was always part of the plan though because as I told you, even David talked about it, right? Acts 2 tells us this. Peter, speaking of David, said he foresaw, this is right after he quotes Psalm 16, that, the, that he would, his body would not see corruption, that he would, God would not abandon Jesus' soul to Sheol, meaning he would rise, he wouldn't stay in the grave. Peter, interpreting what David was speaking about, said this, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the what? Christ. That's who David was talking about in Psalm 16. This was part of the plan When he paid the price for sin, he would raise from the dead. This was the fulfillment of God's plan for the exaltation of Christ and the salvation of sinners. That was the plan. And so let me just tell you this. What we see here is he fulfilled God's plan and the plan of the Lord, the will of the Lord is gonna prosper in his hand. So through Christ's resurrection, think about this for a second. Just think about this. He fully completed God's plan for salvation. Any one of you in this room can be saved from your sin, forgiven, made right before God, live forever with God because Jesus rose from the dead. And if you know Christ, the only reason why that has been accomplished on your behalf that you've been born again, saved, redeemed, transformed, are being sanctified, and will be with God one day forever, is because Christ fulfilled God's will to bring about salvation for sinners and the exaltation of his son. Praise God. What we see next, though, and this points us to even more, is that the resurrection not only fulfills God's plan, but it also, and God's will, but it also does something else. It justifies man's soul. And we've really talked about this quite a bit already, but we're gonna see more here. Read verse 11 with me. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And shall bear the iniquities, and shall bear their iniquities. So just read this and follow along. Let me tell you what's being spoken of here. Out of the anguish of his soul, giving up his son, God the Father giving up his son, out of giving up his son, he shall see and be satisfied. Whose satisfaction is that speaking of? That's speaking of God's satisfaction. What that means is that God was satisfied with the payment of. Who? Christ. He was a substitute. Your sin demands punishment, and death is the punishment. And when Christ died, he had infinite capacity, eternal capacity, to bear the sin of every person who would ever believe in Christ. And when God saw that sacrifice, God was satisfied. His wrath was satisfied. He's the just, he upholds his justice. And he's also the what? The justifier, right? The justifier, the one who satisfies his own wrath so he maintains his justice. And while at the same time, the penalty is paid and we get life and he did so with his son. That's called justification. The fact that God's wrath was satisfied on behalf of sinners and now sinners can be made righteous before God. So what this proves here is that God was satisfied with Jesus's payment. And the way in which we know God was satisfied with Jesus's payment was what? Through the 
resurrection. Listen now, if Jesus stays in the grave, then either he's still paying on it or we still have to pay more or his payment wasn't enough, but he was released. He was released. The payment was paid in full. God was satisfied, as verse 11 tells us. Verse 11 is pointing to justification because we see that, look at it, just look at the text, that he was satisfied, God was satisfied. And then many, through that satisfaction, are made to be accounted what? Righteous. That's justification. God was satisfied. He paid the penalty for sin, maintained his justice. And through that, he makes many righteous. Through faith in him, your sin can be paid for by Christ and you can be forgiven of all your sin and be made right before God. And all of his righteousness would be accounted and accredited to you. And so we see this is justification. Look at this. Through this, the many will be made, what? Righteous. Because he shall bear their iniquities. So by his knowledge or by knowledge of him, really, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many accounted righteous. This is justification. Let me just show you from the beginning. Verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall be satisfied. That means that Christ's payment was a satisfactory payment for God on behalf of sin. By knowledge of him, that is through faith, the righteous one, my servant, shall make many to be accounted. That's a legal term. Righteous. In other words, he satisfied God's wrath. Through faith in him, then, you can be justified. Does this make sense? Romans 4 says it like this. Look, at, look. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our what? Justification. That means that the, the penalty was sufficient. It was sufficient. This is an amazing thing. Because here's what happens is you have to know this. You stand what the Bible says. I'm not just making this up. I mean, just as what it says is that every person stands guilty before God. I don't have to convince you of that. You know you've done wrong things. You know you've, you've sinned. The Bible defines what sin is. You stand guilty before God. Now, there's a, there's a penalty for that. And it's an eternal penalty because you've sinned against an eternal, infinitely holy God. And that penalty is separation from him forever. I mean, that's just clear. That makes a lot of sense. And so God, in his loving kindness, by his own initiative, comes and maintains his justice. He can't just let sin slide. He would be unjust. He would not be a good God. He wouldn't be holy. So instead, he sends his son to live a perfect life who had no reason to die. There was no penalty upon his head. And he kills his son, putting all of the sin for everyone who would ever believe upon his son, who suffered the wrath and the penalty of sin on our behalf. God was satisfied and that's accredited to anyone who through faith trusts in Christ, you are declared to be righteous before God. That's justification. You need to be justified. We all need justification before God. And Christ accomplished that justification. It says in 1 Timothy 3, 6, I'm skipping around a little bit on these verses. So good job there. Great in, indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh and he was vindicated by the spirit. Look at that. He was vindicated. That means he went into the grave for sin and yet the spirit of God released him because his payment was sufficient. That's proven through the resurrection that he paid the price. And so we are justified. Let me ask you this question. Do you believe that? Do you believe you need just to be justified before God? That accomplished that, that was accomplished through the resurrection. Now there's a third thing here, just for time's sake. Let's move to verse 12 here. 
And there's a big word that starts verse 12, and it's what? Therefore. Now, the word therefore is always there for a reason. And whenever we see the word therefore, we always ask, what is it? What? Therefore. Well, here is the result of all of this. Here's the result of his paying. Listen now. Paying the penalty. Yet raising from rising from the dead. Eternally reigning. The will of the Lord prospering in his hand. Exaltation of Christ, salvation for sinners, the satisfaction of God, his wrath being satisfied, faith making sinners justified and accredited to them, to their account righteousness, accounting them righteous. All of that points to a exalted, reigning, victorious king. Therefore, because of all of this, I will divide him a portion with the what? The many. Meaning this, he's going to reign and rule in heaven with all the redeemed people surrounding him. And we are going to be the co-heirs with Christ. This points us to the resurrection securing our reward, our eternal reward. We will be co-heirs with Christ. Christ will reign forever. He shall divide the spoil with the what? Strong, meaning this. The strong here, you know who that is? Us. Not because we are strong, but because the power of God in the gospel has made us in right standing with, with God. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, Yet he bore the sins of many and does what? Hold on a second. Look at that last verse. He does what? Makes. This is present tense. This is, this is uh, uh, perpetual making intercession. This is an alive Savior who in the future will reign for all time and be with those who have trusted in him. This is pointing to the fact that Jesus will reign. Notice how the whole passage, the whole, the whole uh, chapter is in past tense and it's in plural form. And now here we get into present and future tense and it's in, uh, it's in first person. God is speaking here and he is speaking of what Christ, who Christ is now and and what he will do forever. He will perpetually make intercession for sinners. Meaning this, he's alive. He will reign. We will be co-heirs with him. And he will continue to make intercession on our behalf. This points to a risen savior. And so all of this, let's just close this up in summary. In summary. We see that the resurrection here was the will of the Lord. It fulfilled the will of the Lord. Jesus will be the one who reigns forever. He will be with all of the redeemed forever. And the exaltation of his name and the salvation of sinners shall happen through his resurrection. And we know that he was raised from the dead for our justification. God was satisfied for his payment. And through that satisfaction, we can be accounted righteous. And therefore, Christ will reign forever as the exalted, victorious king. And we shall reign with him. And he will make intercession for us forever. And so let me just... As we close, take you back to, to verse one and two of, or verse one of this chapter and ask you the same question. Have you believed this message? Have you believed the message? Have you believed this message? Has it been revealed to you by God? That's the question that this whole chapter started with. Israel's looking back and saying, we got it wrong. We got it wrong. This is the crucified son of God, 
the Messiah, the reigning king who raised from the dead, and we didn't believe it. And so the question is, do you believe it? Has it been revealed to you through God's revelation in his word? My, my hope is that you would, that you would trust in it and live for it. Let's pray. Father, we come and we just ask by your grace that you would take this message and that you would use it for your glory by your grace, that we would be a people who live in light of the resurrection. Thank you for all that you have done for us, that Jesus has died for us, that this fulfilled your plan. The plan was always for him to raise from the dead. Uh, this was always part of it. Uh, you always knew what would take place. This fulfilled it to execute your plan from the beginning of scripture to the end, the exaltation of your son and the salvation of sinners. Thank you, God, that this resurrection points us to the fact that we can be justified uh, and your wrath satisfied. Uh, we can be declared righteous because our sin can be paid for and, um, and we can be um, forgiven. No more guilt. And, um, and God, that uh, the, the payment can be accredited to us, accounted on our behalf. And God, I thank you that um, because of all this, we know that we will, be, uh, we will reign with Christ and have, be co-heirs with Christ. And that, Jesus, you continue and will always continue to make intercession on our behalf. Help us to be amazed at this great picture of a risen Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah,